Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. I'd love it if you could uh, grab out uh, a copy of the Bible, uh, whether it's on your phone or a hard copy of it. Uh, we're going to read from God's Word now, and then Reuben's going to come and open it. Um, if you're new to us here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, or haven't been around for a while, uh, we're working our way through um, a, the, the last half or the second half of the Gospel of Mark, uh, a, a, a series we're calling Servant King. Uh, because the first part of Mark is all about who is Jesus in many ways. The second half is what has Jesus come to do. And we have seen clearly already in the beginning of this second half that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for many nations and for many people like you and me. And so we're sort of picking up the story as Jesus is now on his walk uh, to the cross uh, in Jerusalem. Um, so if you have your Bible handy, um, we have a few copies of the Bible available up on the back table um, in a bunch of languages as well. Um, but uh, in the church Bible, I guess we're on page 706 and it's a long reading, so, uh, but it's wonderful. Um, Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to, to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had some left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. 
Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Um, Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and and asked them, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring, the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her Jesus replied are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God when the dead rise they will neither marry nor be given in marriage they will be like the angels in heaven now about the dead rising have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush how God said to him I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob he is not the God of the dead but of the living you are badly mistaken One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far off from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, 
But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Thanks, brother, for bringing the word. Thanks for the reading. Uh, that is a long section, obviously, and um, we won't be able to uh, look into it all in detail. Um, but I understand you've got midweek groups that meet, and hopefully you'll be able to pick up some of the threads that we, that we open up today. Um, so uh, we're going to work through, um, through that section. I'm going to try and work through it all, but not in detail, if that makes sense. So just to set expectations across this morning. All right, um, okay, so what would be, if I can open it this way, what would be your definition of a very bad day? What does a, just to start on a, on a cheery note, what does a very bad day look like if I just sort of ask you to bring that image to mind? I've heard, um, I've heard that many people have uh, nightmares, one of the common nightmares is of uh, arriving to work and realizing that you haven't put any clothes on, being there naked, that's a, apparently a very common one. I've not had that either in a dream or in real life, thankfully. That would be a bad day, though. Or probably closer to home for many of us, the coffee machine breaks down and there's no instant coffee anywhere in the house. That would be a mild disaster in our household, I think. That could be a bad day. What is it for you, though? Lots of things can go wrong in life, can't they? Relationship breaks down, you fail a course, you get a parking ticket. So many ways to have a bad day. I, I realise this is a, a cheery way to start a sermon uh, on, on a Sunday, but I do want to get you thinking about this question. What is your ultimate bad day? Because in this section of the scriptures, in this part of Mark's gospel, we are about to see some people have their very own version of a very bad day. This, the context for this section uh, is that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem a few days earlier, so two days earlier, and the focus, as Jesus has entered Jerusalem, the focus has been around the temple and the religious leadership in Jerusalem. So when Jesus is asked at the very start of our passage, by what authority are you doing these things? They come to him and say that, by what authority are you doing these things? The things they refer to are a series of very deliberate provocations by, uh, by Jesus just before today's passage. So you have to um, either go back and read over those things or just have them in mind as, as you recall them as we talk about what happens today. Um, but things, all you need to know, even if you haven't read that section, all you need to know is that things have been building for a showdown, okay? Jesus is clearly unimpressed with the state of the temple it's been used, uh, his grievance is that it's been used to line people's pockets. He is unimpressed with the religious leadership and the religious leadership is very unimpressed with Jesus. In fact, they've been plotting to kill him. So things have been building towards a showdown and in today's section, things come to a head. They start to come to a head anyway. And that's going to set the trajectory for the rest of Mark's story about Jesus. This is Jesus versus the religious leaders of Israel. But even though, as I said, the religious leaders have been plotting to kill Jesus, this is not going to be a bad day for Jesus. Not yet. 
Today's passage is about the end of Israel's religious leadership, the end of the temple, the end of old ways of worshipping God. The introduction, as we heard, the introduction to the showdown has the religious leaders mixed as one group. And in chapter 11, verse 27, we have chief priests, teachers of the law and elders. So coming as this one big group, questioning Jesus. And as I said before, asking, what's your authority? Why are you doing these things? And Jesus doesn't engage them uh, directly on this question. Uh, As we heard, um, there's a question about John's baptism in verse 30. Was it from heaven? Uh, Was it of human origin? But because John is popular with the people, they chicken out and don't give an answer. So uh, Jesus, I guess it's fair enough, he doesn't give an answer either. So in this initial kind of um, Jesus versus the, the religious authorities, I think if you see this as round one, it's kind of a stalemate. They ask, Jesus doesn't answer, he asks them a question, they don't answer, It ends with a stalemate, no points scored at this point in the story. But then Jesus goes on the offensive, doesn't he? With the start of chapter 12 begins uh, Jesus telling a parable that is kind of like the whole of the Gospel of Mark in miniature. That's what I like about it. It's this story that kind of wraps up all of what, what Mark's um, trying to say. It's, a, it's a, um, a story about a farmer with a vineyard who leaves it to some tenants, but the tenants badly mistreat the master by beating or killing everyone the master sends. Not hard to pick up on what Jesus is trying to insinuate here about uh, the leadership of Israel and every interaction they've had with God's prophets in the past. Uh, there's a There's plenty of history for Jesus to draw on here, but he's also speaking to those right in front of him. It's not really a cryptic parable. You know, like some of Jesus' parables can be hard to understand. This one, very, very obvious. And and the leaders recognize this. Uh, The the parable becomes so pointed uh, when we read in verse 6, finally the owner sends a son who he loved... He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son, which is an obvious echo, isn't it, to Jesus' baptism back at the beginning of Mark's story where the heavens opened and there's a voice and it says, this is my son whom I love. I'm pleased with him. And also to the transfiguration back in Mark chapter 9, where the same thing is said by the voice from heaven in addition to listen to him. This is my son who I love. Listen to him. But of course, they don't respect the son, is the way the story goes. And in just a few chapters' time, these religious leaders will have, in fact, conspired to kill him. But even as Jesus uh, hints at his death again, he focuses, actually, he focuses our attention on what his death will achieve. So because the temple and the religious leadership is rotten to the core, Jesus wants us to be certain that God will end it and replace it. So that parable where swift punishment will come, well, Jesus focuses on what happens next. God will end it and replace this rotten religious leadership. This is about to end uh, the religious leaders and the temple system in Jerusalem, but look what comes in its place. This is amazing. In chapter 12, verse 10, 
Jesus says these words, quoting from a part of the Old Testament scriptures, which anticipated Jesus, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So yes, Jesus is ending the temple in Jerusalem, ending the religious leaders of Israel, but he is doing so by becoming, can you see, the temple replacement. They reject him, but he becomes the cornerstone of a new temple that the Lord is building. Okay, so that's the opener. That's the the first taste of this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. The opener is the whole group versus Jesus. And now we come, as we move through the rest of the passage, to a series of three individual confrontations. The first is the Pharisees and Herodians versus Jesus. The Pharisees and Herodians versus Jesus. Uh, actually, if you're trying to take notes, I'll give you the heading. So you've got the Herodians and the, the, uh, the Pharise- Pharisees and Herodians versus Jesus. Um, then you've got the Sadducees versus Jesus. Uh, and last, we're going to meet the teachers of the law or the scribes, your Bible might have. So the teachers of the law versus Jesus. Uh, and then um, some thoughts to conclude. So those are the three headings that are coming up. So the first one, Pharisees and Herodians versus Jesus. We had this group, uh, if you remember, back in chapter 3, plotting to kill Jesus And here they are again trying to trap him. In other circumstances, these two groups wouldn't have necessarily been friendly with each other. um, uh, They both both wanted the restoration of Israel, but the Pharisees wanted to see a Davidic king on the throne, while the Herodians wanted to see a, um, a Herod on the throne. And so they had very different visions for the future. Normally they wouldn't have been particularly friendly with each other. Um, But I guess there's nothing like a common enemy to unite um, otherwise um, strained relationships. Um, And so we see them uh, coming to uh, Jesus. They've hatched a plan and it centers around taxes and loyalty. Uh, Let me read from verse 14 again, just to, to, to remind us of what they've said. So they came to him and said, chapter 12, verse 14, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? The idea here seems to be that if he says, yes, pay the tax, he'll be offside with the Pharisees because of implied disloyalty to Israel. He's sort of siding with the big bad Romans, but if he says no, don't pay taxes, then he'll be running foul of the Herodians who don't want any whiff of um, revolution or um, anything that would cause backlash from the Romans. They don't want anything that would cause a a crackdown or a a break in the status quo. Okay, so they've asked him a question and he can't really give a good answer. They're trying to trap him, it says that. They're trying to trap him in his words. But Jesus sees right through the question to the reason. Um, And so, yes, he sees they're trying to trap him. And what he does is, instead of answering their question, calls out their hypocrisy. Bring me a coin, he says. And they do. But what kind of coin is it? It's the kind of coin that he can hold up and say, this has got an image of Caesar on it. 
And if you cast your minds back to uh, what Jesus has just done in uh, the start of chapter 11, you know that whole bit where he goes into the temple and angrily overturns the tables, gets carried away um, uh, with all of the, um, not carried away, um, angrily responds to all of the injustice that's going on in the temple. Uh, If you remember, one of the tables that he overturns is the table of the money changers. And the reason there are money changers in the temple is because you are not meant to take Roman coins with an image of Caesar into the temple. You're supposed to swap them out for coins with no images on them to avoid, obviously, any hint of idolatry or or something like that. But of course, there is a, um, a fee slapped on for the exchange, and so people are profiting from this whole activity. But think about, as they come to Jesus with this question and as they give him a coin with Caesar's image on it, where are they? They're in the temple right now. And what kind of coin? uh, They've got a coin that's not actually meant to be there, one with Caesar on it. And so their hypocrisy is evident to anyone with a brain. Jesus has trapped them, uh, probably through their own foolishness. But Just to drive the point home, he doesn't stop there. Their hypocrisy is clear for everyone to see, but he does give them an answer. And it's an answer that is full of wisdom and which I suspect none of them expect. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That's a pretty great answer, isn't it, when you think about it? Jesus is saying, what's got Caesar's image on it? The coin? Well, fine. Give it back to Caesar. But what is God's? What belongs to God? Well, the thing that bears God's image, of course. That is, you and me. Humans belong to God. And so much more profoundly than the question about who to pay tax to, Jesus says to all of us, consider to whom your whole life belongs and give that to God. Jesus versus the Pharisees and Herodians. How did we go in this first interaction? Uh, That's pretty clear, isn't it? I think we've got Jesus on one point, Pharisees and Herodians on zero. Uh, Group one of religious leaders, successfully silenced by Jesus. They've tried to trap him and they have failed. He has symbolically ended uh, their claim to be uh, the religious leaders and teachers of Israel. Next up, we have the Sadducees. Sadducees versus Jesus. So let's move on to the next group. So Sadducees versus Jesus, who in verse 18 we are told, uh, say there is no resurrection. And um, as the very silly dad joke goes, that's why they are sad, you see. They don't believe in the resurrection. I'm sorry. I don't know. It, it's kind of funny to me. But um, anyway, they, um, they say there's no resurrection. The reason they say there's no resurrection is because this particular group only accepts the first five books of the Old Testament as their scriptures. So the books of Moses, um, And on their reading uh, of these books, no resurrection, no expectation of life after death, and so that's kind of what is being highlighted about them uh, in this this particular interaction, which kind of explains why they come with this particular story to Jesus, doesn't it? They think that the resurrection is unbiblical, 
And so they dream up this ridiculous story to prove that resurrection belief is not just unbiblical, but immoral. Not just unbiblical, but immoral. Uh, You heard it in the reading. There is a woman who marries, and then brother one dies, and then brother two dies. Then strangely, brother three dies, and so on, all the way to brother seven. Okay, so there's possibly something going on here with this woman. I'm not quite sure. We may need a true crime podcast to really dig in and get the facts of the situation and figure it all out. But the question for Jesus is, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? I suspect that in the resurrection, none of them would particularly want to go near her because who knows, you could get killed again in the resurrection. Would you really want to test that out? Is it worth the risk? But more seriously, we see Jesus' answer, which is a total smackdown, I think, to their nonsense scenario. In verse 24, Jesus replies, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Now, for a professional religious person, such as the Sadducees were, It doesn't get any more pointed than that, to be called out in public and say, you are both ignorant and unbelieving. That is a pretty bad day for them, I think. Jesus assures them that the dead do in fact rise in the resurrection and so even taking their own parts of scripture so he goes to the book of Exodus which they accept as scripture and actually proves from there that there is resurrection life And he dismisses the folly of their scenario by filling them in with his own superior knowledge on the matter of what the resurrection will be like, which I suppose you can do when you're the son of God. Like you might actually have the qualifications to speak into that situation. So that's good for Jesus, not so good for the Sadducees. I'd love to stop and think a little more about um, the implications of what Jesus tells us here about um, the significance of no marriage in the resurrection, but I'm, I'm going to keep moving and leave that one for you to discuss um, in, your, in your midweek groups. Um, and let's just think about how this particular um, interaction comes off. So Sadducees versus Jesus. It didn't actually go much better than the last one, did it? At this point, Jesus is up two points and the opponents are still at nil. The Sadducees are silenced, their claims to be teachers of Israel, also symbolically and literally ended by Jesus. He says, you don't know the scriptures. These guys, it's game over. That's kind of hard to come back from, I think. Now let's see if the last group can do any better. So we come to the teachers of the law versus Jesus, or the scribes versus Jesus. So in verse 28... Next up, we have verse 28, a teacher of the law. Some Bibles, like I said, might have scribe um, instead of teacher of the law. Same idea. Uh, These are the guys who are the biblical law experts. And so what follows is a typical lawyer question. Which is the most important commandment? From the outset, uh, we're told that this guy is already on shaky ground as an opponent because he's started warming to Jesus. Did you see that in the reading? Noticing that Jesus had given a good answer, we read in verse 28. So already at the outset here, we're thinking, this guy might not actually be up for the task of effectively opposing 
Jesus, but we'll see. So he asked Jesus this question, what's the most important commandment? And then verse 29, without hesitation, we see Jesus says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the words that are known as the Shema, and they show, most importantly, that the orientation of our hearts is far more significant than any kind of outward obedience. Love for God is what powers a life that properly responds to the fact that there is only one God. There is no other. And like with the coin scenario that we looked at before, uh, Jesus is reminding us that we owe our whole selves to him in loving service. Not just begrudgingly, but we actually owe ourselves to him in loving service with the commitment, full commitment of our hearts. Then Jesus gives a bonus answer. So number two, he says, is love your neighbor. The so-called golden rule, which comes from Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, there's no greater commandment than these. This is not only a great answer, it's a great vision of what life could look like, isn't it? Like, imagine if we managed to live just 50% of the way towards these two things that Jesus talks about, loving God and loving neighbour as we love ourselves. Imagine how good a community and a society that would be to be a part of. It's not only a great answer, it's so great, in fact, that it makes the opponent, the scribe, the teacher of the law, it makes him switch sides. (laughs) the last two groups, they were silenced. But look at this guy, verse 32. This guy, well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jesus was meant to be ending the temple and its practices and the importance of the religious leaders. This guy takes over and does the job for him. Doing this is more important than all the sacrifices, he says. Imagine the look of utter humiliation and defeat that must have been on the Pharisee and Herodian and Sadducee faces when that opponent number three so totally capitulates that he becomes a Jesus hype guy. Well said, teacher, in front of all the crowds. Now, of course, I agree with him. Like, he's perfectly right. He's right to have jumped sides to Jesus. But if we're thinking about this dynamic of Jesus versus these groups, then I think we've actually got to give this guy, I'm going to give him minus points. All right, so um, we're going to end here with Jesus on three and the opponents on minus one. Jesus ends the significance of them all. He even goes on further to denounce the scribes or the teachers of the law because they don't know how to read the Psalms properly. So there's that discussion in verses 36 to 37. And also because of how toxic they are for others that they're meant to be serving. So verse 38, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. 
these men will be punished most severely. All right, let's bring things together. Um, The point of this section overall, as we've seen, is to show both growing opposition towards Jesus as the story comes to its climax that will eventually end with Jesus' crucifixion. So we see growing opposition towards Jesus and also Jesus' extreme opposition to the old ways of the temple and religious life in Israel, which has just become so bad, so corrupt that it's beyond redeeming. And so he's going to replace it. The old ways are coming to an end. He's going, so Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the temple now. I'm the cornerstone. The old temple building is done for. It's over. It's cancelled. And he's going to be the teacher and leader of God's people from now on. Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, scribes, whoever you want to pick, all over, obsolete, cancelled by Jesus. So what are we meant to make of all this by way of response? What are some of the, the so what's for us, I think, in this, in this quite large chunk of text that we've covered? Uh, I'm just going to finish look, by looking briefly at two. The first one is shown to us by Mark as he tells us this story about a very poor widow. So at the, at the end of chapter 12 there, verse 41, look, look with me at this story that Jesus tells about a very poor widow. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she has to live on. Often this passage is used um, as part of a talk about generosity, Um, You know, you're not giving generously if you're just giving from the leftovers of your income or something like that. But can you see, having read the context, that that is not Jesus' main point here. Jesus is holding her up as a model for the disciples, as someone who is completely invested and reliant upon God. She put in everything, all she had to live on, we're told. He gathers his disciples and says, this is what I want you to see from her. This section is about opposition to Jesus and the disciples, they will face the same opposition as Jesus did. He is calling upon them to count the cost of that. So you and I, we must expect that following Jesus may invite opposition, ridicule, in private, in public. And so how invested are we meant to be with Jesus? Happy to follow along, so long as it doesn't cost us too much, so long as it only kind of costs us pocket change in the thinking of this widow's offering story. No, Jesus says, look at this widow. She, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she has to live on. And that's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of of how much she knows that she can rely on God for uh, for, um, for whatever she needs, no matter what, life might throw at her, no matter what her needs might be. Okay, so the the first response is Jesus wants us to be aware of the cost of following him. There will be opposition. The choice we have is pocket, pocket change or all in. And all in is the response that Jesus is calling for his disciples to choose. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your mind, and all your strength. The second response I want to highlight is this. Jesus is really, really good at answering people's questions. I know some of us might think, yeah, I'm not bad at answering people's questions when they've got questions about faith and Christianity. Some of us even enjoy it, but I know for many of us, we wish we were much better at that kind of thing. We get tongue-tied or mixed up or we forget what we want to say until later. We wish we could say things better. Well, one thing I find very encouraging from this, from this section is even if I feel like I'm not great at helping people get to know Jesus, Jesus is. Jesus is very good um, in the way that he presents himself and the way that he gives answers. The kind of answers that we read left crowds amazed. The kind of answers that silenced highly intelligent critics who thought they knew it all. The kind of answers that persuaded people to jump ship and join him. And he's been doing that ever since, as generation after generation picks up these pages and meets him in the scriptures. I think that's really cool. It's not an excuse to be lazy in answering people's questions about Jesus, of course, but it does remind us that one of the most powerful answers we can ever offer to someone is, well, can I introduce you to Jesus? Would you like to read Mark with me, or Matthew, or Luke, or John, or whatever it is, because the most effective apologetic and evangelistic strategy we have, I think, is getting people to meet Jesus in the scriptures and letting him answer their questions, letting him leave them amazed. So there's an idea or, or an encouragement, something to try next time you have the chance. Perhaps sometimes the best answer to a question from someone who is searching is not, here is this killer apologetic response I saw someone on YouTube give, but rather an invitation. Would you like to find out more about Jesus by reading the Bible with me? Would you like to read the Bible with me? It can be such a powerful and life-changing way forward for people. Because Jesus is really, really good at answering people's questions. So I'll leave that with you as an idea and, and for you to see where that might go. And at this point, uh, I, wanna, I wanna pray for us and, um, and then we will uh, we'll keep moving on with things this morning. But um, yeah, do feel free to come and, uh, come and talk with me after if you've got any questions or um, to certainly keep talking in your midweek groups. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for this part of scripture that uh, shows us Jesus shows us his wisdom, his grace, his ability to uh, engage with people who thought so little of him, but for the way he comes off, so clearly your son, whom we should respect. Uh, we thank you for the way that uh, he was not only someone who called out the wrong that was going on in Israel at that time, um, but has been the one who has changed everything in terms of how we relate to you. We thank you that he is the temple and that we are able to be a part of that. We are a part of that if we have come to trust him. We thank you that he is the teacher and leader of all of God's people now. We pray that you would keep growing our confidence to trust him when opposition comes our way, uh, when anything that life uh, gives comes our way. Uh, we pray that you would uh, keep growing our desire and our ability to be all in for him, uh, to love 
Jesus, as we love you with all our heart and with all our mind and with all our strength, with all our soul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.